top of the morning or the afternoon or the evening or the night or whenever. To you, uh, this is John Bensalia. Thanks for joining me again, Perpetual Outsider. You're listening to episode two of the Time Monster podcast. So without further ado, let's crack on with it in five, four, three, two, one. Here we go. And it started on time for once. So, story so far. The master is attempting to summon Kronos. The doctor is trying to get there in a super fast Bessie, uh, but has not managed to reach there yet. Uh, the brigadier and Sergeant Benton have just eaten a very tough pheasant. And Rupert and Stu are arguing a lot about over uh, sexist uh, male chauvinists. So here we go with the reprise from episode two. Episode one, I mean. I'm not sure if they refilmed it or not. There's, um, um, in, vo- in those days, it was a mix. Sometimes they re-recorded it and sometimes they uh, they uh, they kept the original. I, th- I think this looks like a mix of the two. There's none of Dudley's intense music in the background. Yeah, like I said in the in the last commentary, I don't know why the Brigadier and the, and Benton haven't actually tweeted. It's the Master. I mean, he's the same height, same build, same voice. Um, why do they just go around and just whip the uh, whip the Master's uh, protective hood off? Yeah, well, that's blatantly the Master. Why didn't you know that? Unit boys, have a word with yourselves. And Stuart has. Uh, Stuart, not too well here. He's he's about to be aged drastically by uh, by the energy surge, which is actually one of the uh, um, one of the saving graces of the uh, of the story. Actually, it's it's quite an interesting uh, idea. It's a shame that they don't actually run with it and have um, have an old Stuart for the rest of the uh, rest of the story. But I suppose you know the the uh, the, the makeup probably would be a bit too much of a. A, it would be too time-consuming, and B, it would probably be too uncomfortable for the actual Ian Collier. Hmm, good thing that the, uh, the Doctor didn't see the Master there. Sound effects from, I think, sounds a little bit like the, the sound effects from the War Games, which I suppose is, they kind of had the, uh, the stop taper for, uh, uh, for, uh, for time slowing down. Apologies if you uh, heard the doorbell there. That was the postman making a quick cameo. So I'm just picking up where I left off. So the Doctor's reached there in the nick of time. Well, has he reached there in the nick of time? He's obviously too late to save Stuart, who is now a, a wizened old man. It's good makeup, actually. It's one thing they do very well in Doctor Who is when um, is when people get old. Like um, like whenever a character ages to death, like they do in the City Death or State of Decay or or Time Lash, everybody's favourite. But the make the makeup is very good here. It you know it, it looks uh, looks quite convincing. And that's one thing I, I do do get a bit miffed about in uh, modern Doctor Who is that they don't have characters aging to death. I don't think we've had a character who's aged to death. We have a doctor who was aged to a wizened old man in the uh, um, Sound of Drums two-parter, but it's yeah, and you know, and that you know that looked quite good, but um, nobody's actually you know sort of done a Kerensky or a Tekka. 
Yeah, another aspect of the the early seventies is it's quite a it's quite good fun seeing the kind of domestic side of of uh, of the adventures. You know, we're we're in Stuart's flat, and it's a, nice, a neat kind of juxtaposition between you know the science fiction elements and the the mundane everyday elements. You know, it's just Stuart's flat with a you know Stuart's flat with lots of clutter and um you know, mess and everything, and an Elton John poster on the background with, uh, which is, I think is promoting his then most recent album, Mad Man Across the Water, which is uh, not very good. Way too overproduced. Oh, here we go. Here's the big uh, revelation of, uh, just like in The Demons, you know, Joe, did you fail Latin as well as science? You know, <laughs> we got Ab Magister, and now it's... Uh, now it's Thascalus. But Joe obviously took Greek. Or maybe she's been brushing up on Greek studies between uh, the demons and the time monster. I don't know. Yeah, I know that the doctor is mellowing out, but he kind of flashes when he's quite quite irascible. Like, you know, like here, you know, he's, he's telling both Joe and uh, the brigadier to actually, you know, be quiet, you know, very, very abruptly, very rudely. So that, you know, that old fire that the Third Doctor had in his early stories, it hasn't completely gone. It's, it's quite an interesting midpoint, I think, this season, because in some, in some stories he can still be quite rude and abrasive towards, you know, various characters. Um, but he, he can also be, you know, he can also be kind of like the more kind of mellow, um, balanced kind of mediator, I think, of future stories. So it's an interesting kind of halfway house that, you know, that John Pertwee's Doctor is at here. <laughs> okay. um, yes, let's talk a little bit about the, uh, the similes in the Time Monster. Yes, the Brigadier said that he feels as naked as a baby in its bath. Well, he should, he should try being Benton a little bit later in the story. Yes, yeah, some of the similes don't really work, I think. Like, um, I, th I think at one point, uh, Benson says the Master is in the suit without a ladle, which is a little bit... Uh, yeah, it's it's very groovy, flowery 1970s dialogue, which... Um, yes, it's it's quite florid, and it is very much of its time. But, you know, you know it goes back, back to the age-old argument, doesn't it? We are watching a product very much of its time. But it's good to see the Brigadier getting a, clawing back a little little bit of authority in this. You know, he's telling the um, pompous cook where to go. You know, the cook is coming out with all these, you know, these pompous threats and uh, idle, you know, idle threats, actually. So it's good to see the other, the Brigadier standing up to him and ordering him uh, off the premises and uh, instructing him not to say a word to anyone. Well, now he, now the brigadier knows that Thascalus is a dangerous criminal. Slight understatement there, but you know, never mind. Yes, we're kind of moving away from the 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 earlier style of John Pertwee era Doctor Who in this season. 
there's um, there's less emphasis on um, you know the kind of the gritty really the gritty realism which was a hallmark of like, you know, John Pertwee's first season. You know, you are very kind of gritty down to earth stories like Inferno, Silurians. Here it's more, it's a little bit more kind of fantastical. It's not so much on gritty everyday threats, you know, like, uh, you know, sort of a plague in London or, you know, the world blowing up. And it's it's um, a little bit more lighthearted as well. And we, we kind of saw the transition period in the previous season of stories like The Mind of Evil, which still kind of retained a little bit of that season seven grit, but it was moving towards a lighter, fantastical approach, which is what we're seeing here. In the, I, I think the Time Monster sums, sums it up quite well. It's quite, you know, it's quite a, a jump. And maybe, maybe fans of season seven might not like this quite as much, but... Uh, but at the end of the day, Doctor Who is it's supposed to be fun. You know, that's that's its core kind of message. You know, don't take itself too seriously and, and just have fun with it. And like I said in the, in the last episode, if nothing else, Time Monster is a lot of fun. There's a, there's a lot of fun aspects to it. Even if the, the plot doesn't bear a lot of scrutiny, it's still, it's, it is still great fun. And, you know, for me, that's what counts, I think. But John Pertwee does bring a lot of gravitas to his scene still. You know, he's, he's on very commanding form, even when he's forced to, uh, you know, info dump a lot of the exposition here. I mean, he's he's about to explain the background of Kronos and uh, complete with more flowery dialogue, it could, like a boa constrictor can swallow a rabbit fur and all. Um, yeah, who? I wonder who wrote that. I mean... <laughs> You know, how, how on earth did Barry, you know, Barry and Robert actually get to that line? You know, do they think, oh, right, okay. Let's think of the most florid simile that we can. But John Pertwee does uh, does incredibly well. You know, he he may not have cared for the uh for these kinds of these kinds of talky scenes, but he do, he does them with a lot of conviction, a lot of authority, and yeah, there we go. There's there's the dodgy line about the bow constrictor and the rabbit. Yeah, just the way he says, I am. Instant, instant authority, instant gravitas. That's what you get with John Purby's Doctor. You get you get the incarnation who's fully in control. And of course, it made logical sense because it's a complete contrast to the previous Doctor, Patrick Troughton, who, he, yes, he, he had the authority, but it was, you know, it was in a more kind of, it was kind of more by luck than judgment, I think. He was a lot more kind of whimsical and, you know, there, there was an extra bit of vulnerability, but you don't really get that so much with, with John's doctor. You get a lot more authority and a lot more self-confidence, sometimes to the point of arrogance, which can be, which ultimately uh, proves to be his downfall in Planet of the Spiders. Yeah, some fascinating concepts. I remember reading the book. I um, yeah, I, yeah. I actually had the bought the book bought for me in 1986 in February because I was suffering from a bout of chickenpox, and I was uh, you know, sort of a uh, in, enjoying a lot of time off school, which was which was great for me. And also, I had the occasional present, like the uh, the time <laughs> the time obstacle book bought for me, and I was I was quite interested by it. I, I remember thinking, uh, you know, oh wow, I'd love to see this one day. I'd love to see this on TV. 
Um, and I was I was quite surprised that you know the fan fan opinion of the time monster wasn't wasn't that great. It was it wasn't that good. Um, now nowadays I can I can see where some of the fans are coming from. But uh, but yeah, to to um, you know an eleven year old in early nineteen eighty six, this was uh, it was it was a really fascinating story and it gripped me. Master doing his hypnotism again. We don't really get the the close ups of the eyes anymore that they used to have in in the previous season, because they do extreme close ups of the master's eyes and then the uh, the subject's eyes as well. You know, it used to happen in uh, you know in in pre pretty much every story. You know, the master would hypnotize, apart from Colony in Space. Off the top of my head, I don't think he hypnotizes anybody. But um, Percival is such a weak, pathetic man that he can just be overpowered just like that and the, you know the master is actually quite enjoying overpowering you know such a such a puny subject really yeah you, you get a, you get a lot of you get quite a few of those kind of um you know ra rather pathetic authority figures uh, in this season especially with the uh, sea devils because you get you get trencher i mean he's overpowered just by the the sheer power of um, the master's persuasion, rather than hypnotism. You know, it's all about the, um, you know, all these promises of power. You know, and helping his country. And he's he's very much playing on the patriotism with uh, with Trenchard in the Sea Devils, and you've also got Walker in that in that story, and he's uh, extremely pathetic. But uh, yeah, I mean, Percival is he's also an. Ignorant dolt, as well as an aggrant nonsense man, you know, because he, um, he can't get the old e m e equals m c squared, e, you know, e m equals m c cubed. I've just talked over at that bit, which they do a lot in uh, in this story, which is where they kind of um, they come up with a phrase, and then in the next scene they say exactly the same thing, which I've always found a little bit contrived. You know, he, he just said, logically, it just shouldn't happen. The master just said that. Then the doctor says the exact the exact same thing, which is a little bit, little bit hokey, I think. But they do it in the Green Death as well. You know, I think uh, somebody says they're all over the place and then, the brig and then somebody else says they're all over the place. And it's just a little bit, you know, a little bit contrived. Sergeant Benson attempting the uh, the world's strongest man and failing. Actually, good on John Levine for actually making that that very obvious prop crystal look as heavy as a twenty ton weight. He he's very good with um with that kind of you know that kind of heavy lifting act, acting, which is by no means easy. Yeah, John Levine as as Benton. I, th I think he's one of the unsung heroes of this period of Doctor Who. He's always he's always a good rock solid presence, and he's always a uh, a good you know he's always there for the Doctor when the chips are down. No matter how bad situation gets, he's always there, and he'll always be there to pitch in and help out in his own way. And it's uh, and clearly John Levine had a, you know a lot of lot of respect for John Pertwee, as he says in his uh, his commentaries. So th this is a, this is an interesting detail. We're suddenly on film again. We we're off to Atlantis, where um, a man in a what looks like his kid, his son's, or his grandchild's red Indian outfit is uh, looking at a glowing crystal, 
I mean, but we don't know what the hell's going on here, who this guy is, and we don't know until the end of the episode. Oh, we don't know who this weird weird guy is in the the background. He looks like um he's just he's just escaped the band Sweet from the nineteen seventies. Way too much eyeliner and uh, stupid hair. Oh, those old fashioned phones. You know, see that you know, if, if these days they just you know, every, you know, characters just whip out a mobile phone or um you know, Bluetooth or whatever they call it. But you've got, you know, the good old days of actually speaking on the phone. This is a good scene coming up, actually. I mean, it, you know, it gives um, the character of Stuart a little bit more depth because he suddenly realises that he's an old man. And it's it's quite, a, you know, it's quite a nasty kind of concept, you know, it's, you know, this horrible realization that you've aged by about 60 years in about as many seconds. And Ian Collier, yeah, Ian Collier, he play, he plays it brilliantly, actually. He, you know, nicely underplays it, this, you know, this kind of growing horror. And he's, he's a good actor, actually. I, I, he's very good as, uh, as Omega in Ark of Infinity because he come back to play that. Well, there he is. Yeah, he's something, no. These days, we probably really overrate that scene with tears and pompous choirs going, oh, in the background. But mercifully, uh, they underplay it, and I think it's the right choice. But yeah, seeing Collier would, uh, he'd come back to play in uh, Omega in Ark of Infinity and, you know, play it superbly. He was also in, I've got a feeling he was in Rent a Ghost, I think. Don't quote me on that, though. Yeah, there's an interesting mix of actors in this. Um, like uh, Wonder Moore, I think, is, is also good as this. I don't really think there's uh, there's that many bad performances in this. I think um, uh, the guy playing Hippias is uh, <laughs> it's, it's not great, but we'll we'll come back to that in the I think in episode five is is when he when he appears. I think he, he, there's brief cameo in it, episode three, but he's he's not that great. But the other performances are generally um generally not too bad at all. I, I, I don't think it's a story where you can criticize the acting, the sport acting. And Ian Collier does this does the old the old man acting very well. You know, this this kind of quiet sort of you know he's he's appalled, isn't he? At the, the prospect of having to live the rest of his days as an old man. And it's also refreshing that the doctor, he doesn't have the answers at this point. You know, he, he doesn't get out the sonic screwdriver and just, you know, wave it at Stuart says, right, okay, I'm going to make you young again. Right. Just, you know, shall me, gallon me, zoop. Sonic screwdriver, bingo. I've reversed the polarity. He doesn't do that. He, he's actually, he's actually out of ideas for once. And it's, uh, Quite a refreshing tack to take, I think. And here we have uh, Percival trying to fool Benton, and he's not easily fooled by this uh, by this dude. But then, would you be fooled by Percival? I mean, he's God. He's he's about as convincing as Nesca in Planet of the Spiders, crying out loud. <laughs> Never seen a more inept performance. Uh... <laughs> Yeah, I'm, I'm not sure whether that line is uh, is an ad lib or whether it whether it was in the script or that I don't know, but it's it's a good one anyway. 
Yes, the, uh, the, the master's about to pretend to be the brigadier. Now, quite where Time Lords can get this talent from, I don't know, but maybe he's, he's just a very good mimic because he gets it spot on. I mean, it's the sort of thing that, you know, impersonators like, oh, God, for the top of my head, the Brother Lees back in the days, or the Rockin' Berries, or... Um, God, what other impersonators are there? Off the top of my head, my, my mind is kind of blank. But any any good impersonator worth of salt would be would give anything to do what the Master does and get the, the voice down to the team. The Master really should have gone on opportunity knocks on new faces. You know, he, a, a TV career would have beckoned before him rather than all this, you know, destroying the universe arc. Yeah, he, he could have done so much, you know, with entertaining the crowds, with uh, mimicking every Doctor Who character. But of course, Benton is not fooled. And we're coming up to the scene which uh, John Levine explains in the commentary that he wasn't too impressed with the director, Paul Bernard, because... Um, he actually does the stunt himself, and he actually went up. He, he actually climbed the window. Um, but Paul Bernard, for whatever reason, for uh, reason, I'm going all Sean Connery again. Um, he Paul Bernard shot the scene in a close-up, so you don't get any idea that John Levine has done this quite dangerous stunt. You know, which, which actually does look quite dangerous. I mean, if that if that was me, I'd be. Uh, Screaming and waning blue murder. It was a hate pines. So you you don't get any idea about that. I mean, for all we know, John Levine could have just got in through a you know a, a ground floor window. So it's not surprised that he he wasn't too enchanted with Paul Bernard's choice on that occasion. Yeah, but John Levine does the uh, the solo commentary for uh, for the DVD, and um, I know he's had a little bit of stick for for his uh, interesting take on commentaries. But I've got to tell you, I've done a couple, you know, I've done quite a few of these commentaries now. I think I've done about nine or 10. And I can tell you, it is not easy keeping the conversation going. You've got to constantly think on your feet of things to say and things to talk about. And I'm in awe of anybody that can do that. You know, unlike me, who is uh, still very much finding his feet, it is a real learning curve doing these podcast commentaries and actually trying not to let the dialogue flow flag or anything like that. So, um, yeah, I'm, I'm in awe of John Levine who can actually do a one man band commentary, you know, because it is, it is by no means easy. Let me tell you that. Maybe one day I might master it. Who knows? I don't know. Oh, this is the, the, the suit without a label on. That's uh, yeah, not much more. But yes, this was, um, I think this was the last commentary to um, be recorded with Barry Letts. It was a couple of months before he very sadly passed away. And although, although he does sound quite ill on the commentary, he still nevertheless got his humour and his knowledge and, uh, and, his, and his wit still very much about him. But I think he could have, he could have done with a little bit more input from the, the regulars. Um, there's, there's no Katie Manning's name. Uh, Richard Franklin on this. Um, um, yeah, I think, it, yeah, if it, if it was recorded in 2009, yeah, Nicholas, Nicholas Courtney, would, I suppose, would have still been around, but maybe he was just unavailable. But it's, it's a shame that they, uh, they didn't get some of the regulars in the commentary, so it's a little bit. And the, um, yeah, I think there's a, I think there's a fan commentary in episode 
three, I think they get you know some fans into commentate. So, um, but you know, um, maybe, maybe they might add a few new commentaries for the Blu-ray. I don't, I don't know. It'd be, be great if they could get Casey Manning on there. Um, yeah, I'm talking over yeah, Crassus, Crassus, Crassus. I think he's called. Who's uh, shouting and vanishing in a blaze of lightning? And another very strange end cliffhanger ending. But look at Percival's face here. <laughs> he's, he's got his mouth open like a little baby. He's like, ah! At the sudden appearance of Crassies and the very unusual fade in. They don't really fade in the, uh, the titles that much. But doing the robots of death, I know, I know that for the cliffhangers. Uh, they, they do that for parts one and three. And I know they, they fade in slowly on the end of the Green Death when the Doctor's driving off into the sunset. But, uh, yeah, it's an unusual choice and a completely geeky one. On which note, um, this is the end of a podcast for the Time Monster episode two. Thank you for looking in. Apologies about the uh, the postman making a cameo doorbell sound. He, he just wanted... Uh, to be in on the action but uh never mind hopefully we'll get a postman free episode next time but in the meantime goodbye for now thanks for listening